Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm Crystal Echohawk, Executive Director of Illuminative. The murder of George Floyd and the response by the police and federal officials, including the president, have spurred the world into action. Protests against police brutality, systemic racism, and calls for justice have taken place in all 50 states and in cities around the world. Amidst the pain and grief, we are witnessing a powerful new surge across diverse communities in this country to come together and to fight for justice. Illuminative stands with our brothers and sisters in the black community who are speaking out and fighting systemic racism and police brutality that continues to take too many lives. We remember and send prayers to the loved ones of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless others. We also stand with those native peoples whose lives were also taken by police violence and their families and loved ones who share in this grief, anger, and calls for police and criminal justice reform. While some are only now beginning to understand the deep roots of racism that impact the lives of Black, Latinx, Asian and Pacific Islanders, and Indigenous peoples, we understand that racism is the undercurrent that drives institutions of power here in the United States. In the midst of the pain in our communities, we also have hope that we are on the verge of systems-wide change. We must continue to march, protest, call for justice. We need to truly listen and see one another. We need to organize, hold elected officials accountable, and we need to support our brothers and sisters in the black community. Today's episode is just the beginning of a conversation that we'd like to have on this podcast about what is going on in our country right now. We begin this conversation with a piece by Allison Herrera, who calls Minneapolis her home. Her segment brings you a postcard of the challenges and hopes of the Native community from her beloved city. But first, here's series producer Monica Brain talking with Mark Trahant, the editor of Indian Country Today, about the protests, racism, and looking towards the future of the United States. Mark, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. You know, reflecting back on this week and everything that's happened, what have you been thinking about? Well, it's, I mean, you, we passed this things that are never going to happen to us happening several times already in this year. You think about, really, most of us as journalists, we thought 9-11 was the biggest thing we'd ever cover. And then this and the pandemic itself goes back to a century. And then what's happening on the streets, a really deep-seated passion. It's hard to imagine stories getting any more important and pronounced and chaotic and fascinating all at the same time. I, I thought, and this is really bizarre, but the only story I can think of that would take this up to another level would be if Yellowstone were suddenly to erupt. <laughs> We've gone through about every other scenario as bad as it can be. 
So, Mark, thinking about this past week and reflecting on what happened, and I know that you're a big fan of history and you like to to go back and draw parallels. What were you thinking about in terms of history and the events this past week? Really, we don't have a lot of federal parallels. This level of uh, both, I'll just say it, incompetence and what would be considered dictatorial has really hit states from time to time, but never the federal government. We came close. I mean, in the 1930s, uh, Huey Long was the governor of Louisiana and was very much in the spirit of a Trump. And he fashioned to, he would serve as governor until he ran out of terms and then got elected to the Senate and had started a presidential campaign. And Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt was brilliant in that he took a lot of the ideas that Huey Long had been advocating for and absorbed them into the Democratic Party because Huey Long was on the left, but more chaotic than that. And he made it so that Long no longer had a presence until he was assassinated. The same source, and he ran Louisiana well, all the while he was in the United States Senate. So it was this really American empire emperor that was really, could have been the country's fate in 1932 had it not been for Roosevelt. What's really interesting is when Trump came into office, how he was able to unify the Republican Party on this mission in taking apart really long-held Republican ideals and just throwing them out the window in the name of Trump. One example is trade. Up until four years ago, most Republicans were free traders and wanted the world to have a better open trading system. And now because of this shift, you see a Republican party that's anti-trade, wanting not America to deal with the world, blaming China for everything that's going on with the pandemic, which is really interesting in itself because pandemics have happened all throughout history. In fact, the Spanish flu probably started in Kansas, not Spain. And yet nobody blamed America for that at the time. And pandemics are something that happens in the world. It's just not something that a country causes or is a result of. We're in charted territory though for the United States. And I think it's a real test. And you saw some of it when military people started to say, we're not gonna do this with you, Mr. President. One member of a defense board actually resigned his post and said he thought the president was exceeding his constitutional authority. The Secretary of Defense did not go that far, but said that they would not be using troops uh, in cities the way that the president had said. And in fact, many of the troops have returned to their base from that whole call up that happened just a few days ago. In fiction, we've seen it. I mean, the one fiction piece that's really worth thinking about and reading again is Seven Days in May. And it basically is a constitutional coup in the United States and what happens when, in this case, the military takes power. But it certainly can be a president, too, because the Constitution really limits the power of any president. In fact, in this system, it's supposed to be co-equal branches, the judiciary the Congress and the president, not one in charge of the other. And both the president and the attorney general have been followers of a philosophy called the unitary theory of government, which uh, basically says the president has all the power and they've acted that way. You wrote in Indian Country Today about uh, the riots in Tulsa or a massacre 
in Tulsa. And I wondered if you could expound on that and why you went to that for your piece. In 1919, this really was a test of the country and it always has been in terms of our deals, ideals in terms of really how we believe in democracy and whether it applies for everybody. And it's said often that the two original sins are dealing with tribes and the second is slavery. And those two original sins keep popping up in different parts of our history in really violent form. 1919 was one of those years. The country was coming off of a flu pandemic and a series of race riots happened across the United States. And in many cases, it was police officers attacking African-Americans. The worst one was in Chicago and it lasted some days. And it was so bad across the country that they called it the Red Summer. Fast forward a couple of years to 1921, Tulsa was really a great example of African-American success. They called it the Black Wall Street. It had a community with shops and businesses and really successful entrepreneurs and people doing, really living the American dream. And there was a situation where rumors went around about a black man who was involved allegedly with a rape and people from the community on white community started to go down to city hall because they wanted to lynch him and people from the black community went to the courthouse to protect him and it eventually the people in Tulsa used that as a moment to attack the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa which was the black wall street it was a 14-hour massacre and basically the entire town neighborhood was wiped off the face of the earth. The pictures today that you look in the National Archives are just really stunning in how brutal it was. Many of the people were moved to the fairgrounds and did not face the actual assault, but others were assaulted on the spot. And in fact, the number of orphans that came out of that whole history was really extraordinary where people lost both their little kids, lost both their parents. There's a really powerful picture from the archives of a young boy carrying his sister who had died and trying to carry her to safety. In fact, it became part of a big fiction drive and it's in a current HBO film called The Watchmen where they tell that story again. And it's funny because they actually use a young boy as one of the characters, but the picture of him carrying his sister is very similar to the one that was used in history. What I like about that series on HBO is that it involves an element of futurism. And so you have reparations. There's a whole museum and, and that retells the history and you can get a DNA test and you can see if you qualify for reparations for it, which I think right. is really, really phenomenal forward thinking about it. Thinking to um, what's going on today. Are you hopeful that some kind of change will come about as a result of the mass protests, the riots, the government response? I mean, to me, the government response is irrelevant because in the theory of any demonstration in basically dissent is that you build the numbers so that what the government does is reactive, not leading. And I think that's already seen to be true. Every night the marches grow, they take on new tactics, they do new things, and it shows that the power has shifted. And a government can kind of try to take that back, but it's very difficult. Last night I went to the march in Phoenix, 
And I was just struck by one, how well organized it was. Not only were people marching in 108 degrees, but people were walking up and down the march, handing out water. Other people were handing out snacks. People were handing out sunscreen. The atmosphere was extraordinarily helpful and friendly. And what can we do to help you? If you need a place to rest, here's one. And it, that level of organization, I think, is really remarkable. When you overreact, and that's certainly, I think, what's happened on the government side, it causes people to rise up in ways that governments don't expect. And you see this throughout the world. It's not just something that happens in the United States, where the more you try to clamp down, the more it brings out people to say no. This is not acceptable. And you're seeing both that in government and with ordinary people. What do you think that Native America has to gain from what's going on? Well, Native Americans have the highest rate of police violence. So certainly just on a very practical level, having this discussion about law enforcement and how to reform law enforcement is critical. Not only do people die in the way that they have seen in recent stories from police actions, but Native people tend to die in incarceration where they're supposed to be protected and supposed to be safe. So we have dual problems. And if you look across the spectrum, the number of the percentages of Native Americans dying either in police custody or as part of a police action is just un way beyond the pale. On a secondary level, I think we have a moment where we can certainly bring to the discussion how democracy should work and how it should include tribes, the people who are here first. We saw that in a weird way with the CARES Act for all its faults and all the way it happened so fast and the way that it was chaotic. On the other hand, it was the largest investment the United States has ever made in Indian country. And when you think of all the things we've tried and failed at, that's pretty stunning. I mean, it's a good thing. I mean, it clearly was not enough money and it clearly had its problems, but just the idea that it was in the discussion. And I think that really shows the rise of indigenous representation, where you had people on both sides of the aisle, Tom Cole, Deb Holland, Sharice Davids, who were able to say, no, you gotta do this. This is a minimum step. And that minimum step was significant. And that's gonna be interesting to see if that kind of this level of discussion can continue. On the really long view, I think a real question has to be asked about what happens to tribes if there is not a United States? Are tribes prepared to go it alone? Are they prepared to go with states or regions? We look to history and the Soviet Union collapsed in such a short period of time. There's no grant of a country to last forever. And that's something that I think tribes are gonna to have to work out how we have cultures and languages and ideas that have a 10,000 year history how do we make sure the next 10,000 years is secure? May I suggest that you yourself are reading and consuming too much futurisms? I don't think so. You know, it's funny, I, I was at a conference right after Donald Trump was elected and I gave a talk and I talked about how, what you need to think about if the United States goes away. And at the time it was just nuts. No one would have ever said that. But you look at the events of today and I don't think it's beyond the realm. It could happen very quickly. It could happen when California decides something and the federal government goes in with troops. The attorney, the attorney general from New York yesterday said 
that if the federal government sends in troops, she will be on the other side. And I think that shows that what we think of as absolute may not be. I mean, do you think that folks during the 60s when they were fighting over segregation and the federal government was sending in troops and things like that were thinking, this is the end of it, we're gonna, six, we're gonna you know, be our own country? I think it was different. I don't think, no, I don't think people were thinking that. And I think the whole thing was different. I think they were a pet gas. You think of the National Guard shooting people in Ohio and how, just how quickly all institutions said this is wrong. What you have that's different now that really hasn't been in the United States since the Civil War is a significant part of the population that's willing to kill another part of the population over ideas. All right, always depressing. Thank you. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Jeez, Mark. I didn't mean it to be depressing, but you know, they're just the, the amount of people out there that are willing to do that. In Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, yesterday, folks were walking around with military garb and basically saying, we hope there's a riot so we can shoot them. That was happening and here in Albuquerque. There's a yeah. white supremacist group that showed up. The Red Nation was there, and they were sort of reporting on, on social media about what happened. Too. Okay, yeah, we haven't seen that level of hate since the Civil War. I mean, there is um, a lot of opportunity here, and the opportunity for people to talk about leadership and how that has made real differences. So you're seeing a dysfunctional Washington, but you're seeing other places where there's been a really smart, well-planned out conversation about how to move a community forward. If you wanna watch something that brings inspiration and aspiration, look at Peggy Flanagan's talk at the press conference in Minnesota talking about how she would be on the streets, but here's why you should stay home. It was one of those things that I hope people who study rhetoric study. Mark, thank you so much. I know this is, this week in particular, it's, it's tough to carve out time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it. We've got a link to Mark's essay about the Tulsa riots on our website, illuminatives.org. Now, here's Allison Herrera from Minneapolis. It's been a painful week here in Minneapolis. My city has been ripped apart after George Floyd was killed while in police custody. Residents in the city have expressed their collective pain and deep anger at yet another killing of a black man that died at the hands of the Minneapolis police. Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan of the White Earth Nation had this to say at a press conference that was heard around the world. And my heart and my guts are being ripped out in this moment as I also want to go to the streets. And what we've experienced in the loss and the murder on camera of our community member, George Floyd, is horrific. And that space on 38th and Chicago is sacred ground. The death of George Floyd unleashed a tower of emotion and anger among communities of color throughout the city. And with that anger came destruction. Businesses, property, and beloved community institutions were gone. 
When I woke up on Friday to a text message that Migazi, a nonprofit that serves indigenous youth and is an archive for the city's native population for more than 40 years, was on fire, I was sick. It was 5 a.m., but I hopped on my bike anyway and raced down the street to see it for myself. The whole block smoldering. Migazi's roof collapsed and flames could be seen still inside the building. My heart was broken. South Minneapolis has fed me and been a place of community for almost 20 years. Rubble, smoke, and ashes floated in the air throughout the city. Those who worked for Migazi and stayed there until the early hours of the morning said that members of the American Indian Patrol movement watched over the building in the absence of police protection until it became too dangerous and the building caught fire. People's hearts were broken. But the next day came with hope and resolve. Lemoyne LaPointe and his two sons gave a blessing for the building and expressed the feeling people in the community had. When we share these songs, and as we say these prayers, we remember George Floyd, our black brothers and sisters, our native brothers and sisters and lives continue to be taken, continue to be killed by police. Police brutality in this country. So we're gonna sing these songs, offering for this space here to make this land, acknowledge this land, acknowledge the sacredness of this land. My grandmother pointed at all these young people and she said, wherever these young people gather, that's a sacred place. She said, that place, that school, <coughs> is as sacred as that church on top of that hill. I say that because that's what this building means to us as a native community. It's a sacred place for our kids. All along Lake Street, a place built and revitalized by the city's Somali and Latinx population, volunteers swept up broken glass, dropped off groceries for families, and sifted through the debris with resolve. A jingle dress dance was held at 38th in Chicago. The place where Floyd died and was now guarded by community members around the clock helped bring people together. And Migazi vowed to rebuild. A fundraiser quickly passed its modest $25,000 goal, reaching up to $100,000 by the end of the day. As I walked around the city talking to people with brooms, trash bags, and shovels, there seemed to be no appetite to just clean up the destruction and move on. Some said the fires were necessary. This time is different because those out on the streets aren't asking for an elected official to step down. They're asking for the whole system to change. And it's not just African-Americans who are asking for Minnesota to examine inequality and racism. It's the city's indigenous people, too. Families have been targeted by the Minneapolis police for decades, say many of the people I spoke with. In 1993, a pair of Minneapolis police officers were accused of putting two Native American men in a trunk of a police car. In 2002, officers were accused of kicking down the door of an apartment building and beating the people who lived there. 
In 2003, two other officers were accused of urinating on a man and leaving him outside in the bitter Minnesota cold. Minneapolis resident Rhea, who wouldn't give her last name, says she's threatened by officers meant to patrol Little Earth, the native housing development she lives in, and says those who are there don't do anything to keep people safe. And um, they have paid police officers off duty to do um, security, which the officer that's in charge, he, he is not um, really doing security because the gang violence and the drug activity is still going on till this day. Derek Chauvin, the officer involved in Floyd's death, had a dozen complaints against him and a lawsuit that alleges he violated a prisoner's rights. Lisa Bellinger, who is from the Leech Lake Reservation, says Chauvin was involved in the death of Wayne Reyes, who is also from Leech Lake. Reyes was pursued by police and shot multiple times by officers. She was horrified by what happened to George Floyd. You know, that's something that my family has stood up against for since I was little. You know, the, the, the racist acts against and violence acts against our people, against human lives. You know, it's not just the African-American community that this has happened to, it's American Indian. And, you know, if you read the history behind that officer Chauvin, <laughs> You know, the last, in 2006, he was responsible or as part of that killing of Wayne Reyes, who was one of my fellow tribal members from Leech Lake. So, you know, this is not new for us. It's not new for our community. It's sad that it ha it's still happening. Great. You know, it, it's, it's a tremendous loss, and we will stand in partnership with the American Indian Movement, and we'll stand in partnership and solidarity with our African-American, you know, relatives as well. And stand in partnership they did. After the looting, fires, and destruction happened, communities were exhausted and fed up. They felt the city's leaders failed to protect them, so they decided to do it themselves. Are you guys going to be out patrolling tonight? Yeah. Where are you guys going to be going? Uh, we're going to different places. We're, we're going to figure that out in the meeting here. Oh, okay. But there's a few different places that we're going to be at. Okay, so you're going to be, you know, kind of patrolling the neighborhoods, patrolling the businesses around here? Yeah, community yeah. houses. Which, the community houses and everything else. And Little, and Little Earth? Little Earth. On Franklin Avenue, right before the 8 p.m. curfew, a black pickup truck with the American Indian Movement flag sat in the parking lot of the Native American Community Development Building. Nearly 100 people gathered to sign up for patrol duties to guard the people and the streets. Ballinger sat with a few others at a table before a line of people queued up to get food, and she gathered names, took down cell phone numbers, and assigned block patrols. Are you guys signing up people to patrol blocks right now? We're signing up people to, to patrol um, sites, specific sites. Okay. 14 sites right now. And we have, they're both in Minneapolis and St. Paul. They're specific American Indian owned businesses or sites. And we're here to um, hopefully protect them from any of the rioters or looters that are here to destruct and destroy property and buildings. Minneapolis is the birthplace of the American Indian movement. It was born in response to police brutality. While surveillance helicopters loomed overhead and National Guard tanks barreled down the street, longtime AIM member Frank Paro says AIM is here to protect the people. This is AIM country. This is our land. We've got 15 Indian organizations. Most of them were, cre were created by the American Indian Movement. This is, this is, we're a family.
Thanks for listening to our episode today. If you have feedback for us, send us a message. You can find a form on our website, illuminatives.org. Our executive producer is Heather Ray. Monica Brain is our series producer. And Lincoln Cornshucker is the associate producer. Sound engineering is by Marino Spencer. Music from Samantha Crane. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, the Shakopee Mittawakanton Sioux Community, and the Macy Family Foundation. Take care, relatives. We'll see you next time.